Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lanier. Are you aware of how you're the one making your life more difficult? Are you expecting the universe, your relationship, your work, or your parents to give you permission to do what you most want to do? And how is your past still getting in the way of you creating the life you're here to live? Transformational speaker and author Coot Blackson is back to discuss the power of commitment, stealing food to survive, and how he pissed off his father in order to build his own life. Hello, hello. There he is. Uh, brother. How you doing, buddy? Good, bro. Right on. Oh, and uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah, loud. Loud and clear. I'm surprised. Awesome. Yes, uh, Skype's got better sound quality than like a regular phone, so I like using it. This is awesome. Yeah. I wasn't expecting such uh, clarity. Yes. But part of that is just my own spiritual energy showing up. Fuck, man. That's, that's the key. <laughs> When, this is the test. Nobody knew that, that Skype was the test for your spiritual development. Um, but yeah, the, the more the clearer you are on Skype, that's um, that's where you are. So soul skyping, bro. Soul skyping. Sounds like you've got some development to go. It's a little muddy. Our near. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working. On it. I'm going to go back to the meditation board. <laughs> Maybe the next lifetime, you'll you'll get you'll get. I'll it. try. I'm loving the book. Cool, man. And Allison's been stealing it from me. We've been we've been, <laughs> we've been fighting over it. So um, yeah, we're both just proud of you. And it's great to just get you like like really get some of your stories. And and even though I've known you for years, it's it's um, yeah, I'm just proud of you. I'm excited for you, and I'm just loving it too. I get I get books from friends, and it's like okay, and they do their teachings. But I've just really loved the stories and the anecdotes. And even though I've heard some of them before, it's just been. Yeah. I've just been I've been looking forward like okay cool I get to go re- back to reading this book again I don't get I don't get that too often with books especially in the kind of the transformational personal development area That's great bro makes me happy Yeah Well I'm talking to Coot Blackson uh you're no stranger to the new man you've been on here before uh if you haven't heard of him before he's a transformational teacher speaker and now the author of You Are the One available everywhere including Amazon Welcome back buddy Great to be here, man. I've been looking forward to it. I yeah. Feel like an old timer. 
you know, I, I felt when you came and, and met me in Santa Monica and you hand-delivered the book a few weeks ago, I was really touched. Like, all right, this is good. This is happening. We've been talking about this book for a long time. It's uh, since I was probably like one years old or something. You know, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been in the making. My whole, People say, how long did it take you to write? Like six months a year? No, it <laughs> took me like, like 30-some years to write this book, you know? So uh, it, uh, it took a long time, but I feel it happened at the right time. And I feel everything has a timing if you're willing to trust timing and not force things. So uh, it, 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 it really felt like when, when things were ripe, when my soul was ripe, then uh, it unfolded. So uh, it's, a, it's a real, it, to, uh, honestly, it's an honor to be uh, a servant to the message of the book. I don't really feel I wrote the book trip. I feel like it, it was a message that was seeking to happen. It, it, you could say it chose me or I tapped into the, the soul of the book and, uh, it was a message to somehow be a part of giving birth to it. You've got a lot of the the kind of perennial wisdom in there, and and you know I've been a student of that for years. So that's laced throughout there. But I think what I was what I've really just enjoyed is getting to know you better. Even though I've known you for it's been it's been like a decade now, and I've heard so many of these stories. I haven't heard them like this. I, I've heard mm-hmm. stories about you taking people to India and, and some of the things that you've experienced there, but I've gotten to learn more about you and your personal experiences mm. uh, in here as well. But um, there was a, sport, a, a story about this book that I thought was really interesting. When, when you and I had lunch a few weeks ago in Santa Monica, you said um, you got the deal to do this book before it was even read, and then you realized it was time to rewrite it after you got the deal. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we we had a whole auction bidding war situation. I, I chose Simon and Schuster because I felt they aligned with my vision, you know. And I had an I, I wrote the book, which was a different title. The title of that book was was Love Now, which is going to be my second book. So that was the title. That was the book I thought I was going to write, you know. And it's right. funny because there's often what we think we're going to be and what we think our life is going to be. And and uh, so I had this idea. I was on this track and and uh, handed in the manuscript I've written probably a year before selling the book and figured this would be what goes out into the world. And, and the editor at the time said, this is not bad. This is cool. Make a few tweaks here and there. Cut a long story, short trip. Uh, uh, it was, you could say it was turned down. Versions of my book, after I sold it, after they cut me a check, was turned down <laughs> eight, eight times. I'm sweating bullets, peeing my pants. It's not bad. We're just going to turn you down eight more yeah, times. It's, it's not bad. We just need a little change. No, it's not bad. We need a little tweaking. No, Why don't you just tell me you need the whole book rewritten? But wow. uh, it, it really made me uh, surrender. And I think that's been a key of success in my life is we often have this idea of, of you know, what, what we think our goals are going to be or what do I want versus really asking the question, what is it that wants me? What is it that's seeking to happen? So uh, the book that ended up, uh, even the title change, You Are the One, was not the title. So the book that ended up uh, in your hands and in many of the readers' hands today is, is not the book I originally thought. And that's where I feel the magic happens, you know. Uh, I feel the book chose me. I feel our dreams choose us because we're, we're somehow perfectly equipped to, to fulfill those visions. But sometimes those dreams and those visions or the book or the script or whatever it is we want to do, they're, they're evolutionary in nature. So they will often take us on a journey uh, of, of having to strip away and question and, and really become the, 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 the caliber, the level of human being that is really able of holding the vision of, of the book. So the book took me on a journey, for sure. Of well, surrender. let's talk about that, because you, you talked about surrender. 
And that gets a that's a dirty word for most men. Like the, it's somehow associated with weakness that we need to be steadfast and we we dig in and you know that we're going to fight for this. And I'm hearing you say, well, I they kept telling me to change it and I changed it. Some guy might say that's compromise that you were that you were compromising who you were. You were compromising your message. So I want to help. I want to try and figure out what the difference is here. What's the difference between compromise and surrender? Well, you know, I I think when I started realizing in the process. That there, I knew certain things I was unwilling to change. So let's just get that clear. Mm-hmm. I think you have to know who you are. You have to know what's meaningful to you. You have to know what's true to you. And I knew what was true to me. I knew what was meaningful to me. I knew what my core message was. What was being, specifically around the book, what was being asked to be tweaked was certain writing styles. Certain, it was more the things on the surface, you know, certain techniques of, of stringing paragraphs together, certain ways of uh, delivering a message that in a book format, you know, the way I speak is different than, how it ha- in, than the written word. So what was being asked to, to, to be tweaked was, was not really the essence of my message. So I had to make the, distinct, the, the distinction between the two. Right. And, I, and I had to, you could say I humbled myself enough which was hard to realize, wait a second, if I want the, the, my message, which I'm not going to compromise, to really work in the written format, which is you know, on some level, uh, people don't get to see me speak and pace up, up and down on the stage and you know, crack jokes and they don't get to necessarily feel my energy as a transmission, right. uh, uh, then, then if I really want my message to reach people, I'm going to have to, to maybe listen and make some tweaks. So I had to feel the difference between the message and and the delivery system. So that was one. So well, that, that's a big part of it, right? Can we get out of the way? If, if we've got something here, we've got a mission that's really important. Can we? Are we willing to get out of the way sometimes so that that can happen? Yeah, and that, that was that for me. That, that it required honestly a level of humility because I, I thought it was going to be a different book. I thought. I had this idea that I was going to take my best blogs and my best videos and all the the, the, the titles that were shared the most and and slap that into a book. Oh, right. And people would love it because that's what the response was. But, uh, you know, the, the book ended up really being, a, a, you could say, taking people through my journeys to India through stories and anecdotes and weaving in wisdom and framing it around uh, my, my, my one-on-one journeys to India, which was not what I wanted to do, not what I thought I would do, what I said on the surface I wouldn't do. But when I felt deeper, and here was the difference, when I felt deeper than my mind, than my ego, than my logic, when I felt a little deeper at, as the feedback came to me and I kept feeling deeper, I, I kept feeling the truth of what was being asked. Mm-hmm. I kept... I, when I fell into the deepest depth of my heart, not my mind, I kept feeling the rightness of there is something else. There is more. And, and I couldn't deny that. And that's how I knew I wasn't compromising myself. And had I felt deeper and felt like, no, this is my line. What I've written is how it needs to be. Then I wouldn't have shifted it. But as I kept feeling deeper and kept feeling deeper, I kept feeling deeper. I could feel <clears throat> something emerging. And then when I would write it, when I'd create it, when I'd work with my editor who tweaked some things, it just struck gold. Yeah. You know, it just, it just felt it. What, the easiest way I can say is it just felt aligned. Yeah. It just felt aligned. So I think you hit one of the, the key phrases is, is really to me, life isn't so much a process of making things happen. 
but a process of getting ourselves out of the way so that we can be the vessels for the, the information, for the creativity, for the wisdom to, to come through us. Yeah. I think life's hard whenever I think that my ego likes this idea, but that I'm the creative con, like I'm the guy, I'm the creative force, but I don't remember my best, most creative moments. Like I, I wasn't there. Like there was a sense of like, I could look back on when things got recorded or I don't remember a lot of the interviews I did. It just kind of happened. Um, yeah. You know, I, I got out of the way and it sounds a little, it might sound a little weird to somebody when they hear that, but I challenge you like the, the best moments in your life, whether you're playing sports or, or you're making love or whatever, do you, were you really there, the one controlling and pulling all the levers or, or had you prepared yourself to be in that moment and then you were out of the way? And, um, and so I think it, I think it is being able to recognize that process and, tra- you know, train ourselves for it or, you know, practice and and be able to recognize that there will be a point where we get out of the way and then we become those vessels for that to happen. I love that. I always say, we, you know, look, you don't have to surrender, but if you don't, it tends to be either suffering or we live somewhat of a limited life. And, you know, the mind can only take you so far because the mind is conditioned. Uh, the soul, what, what our true depth of being is, is really unconditioned. So I think that's where the real freedom, freedom lies. And yeah. if, if you look at when people take, uh, let's say, you know, get drunk or have an orgasm or do a drug, it's in those moments where one's, one's grip on one's identity, on one's persona, on oneself, the grip that we have so wrapped tightly on who we think we are, is in that moment is, is kind of loosened for a moment. And, and, you know, we have a few drinks, that, that grip on ourselves just kind of relaxes that sense of self-contraction, self-control, who we think we are, and, and, and the way we've lived inside of a prison of our own personality just kind of opens up a bit. And we feel like, whoa, I feel some space for a yeah. few seconds or for a few moments. Yeah. You know? And I think that's, that's where there's, you could say, we feel a certain pseudo-freedom, and then we keep looking for those methods and means in the world uh, to try and kind of access that again. So I think living that way, is, is, is where the real freedom is, which requires a, a constant letting go of control, letting go of control, letting go of control, letting go of control. So well, that's it. I mean, you know, if I talk to a guy, I talk to a lot of guys, there's a lot of guys that listen to this show, they've done really well for themselves. They've reached some level of success in their lives because they've been able to control, right? And, but many times, even though they've reached the success, they don't understand why they're not fulfilled or why they're not happy. And they don't see that they did it because they were trying to please someone else or they were trying to prove something to themselves or to who, you know, their parents or the kids in middle school, or they're still trying to rebel against their upbringing. They haven't, they haven't really stepped into that next level, like you said, where there's a surrender, where they get out of the way and just recognize that they're here to do something far more powerful and far more important on this planet other than just try and control and hold on to what they want. Um, So I wanted to dive into that with you today because... You had a really different childhood. You had a you had a path all lined up for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, tell us a little bit about that, and then I want to get into where you you came back to your own core and said, you know what, there's something else going on here. Yeah, I mean, in a, in a nutshell, you know, being born in Ghana, West Africa, father's Ghanaian, mother's Japanese, grew up in London. My father, my first memories as a young boy was literally. I remember being around age five and being lost in the crowd and seeing a crippled woman crawling on the floor, picking up the sand that this man walked on, wiping it on her face and standing up. And week after week, so I, I grew Your up... Your father sitting, was a healer. 
my fa- this guy was my father. The sand who she picked up was the, the, the sand that my father, the, the, the gravel that my father walked on. So my father was a minister, a healer, had 300 churches in Ghana, West Africa at his height, had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of followers, um, had a church in London, which is how we ended up in London. So week after week, Trip, I grew up seeing blind people see. He'd put his hands on people. Their eyes would open. Uh, people crazy. Come- come into church uh, with crutches and he would say, throw away your crutches and start running, running. And they would be like, you're crazy. He's like, no, do you believe? And they would say, well, yes. And he'd say, if you believe, then why are you holding on to the crutches? So let them go. And they would literally right in front. I mean, it's one thing to see on TV, but I'd see it right in front of me. They would just start running around the church. And That's hard to believe. Like if I, I've never it, seen that. So it's really hard to believe that. It, it is, you know, I'll be honest. And what, but for me as a kid, I didn't know any different. For me, it was absolutely as normal as you switching on CNN. It yeah. was absolutely as normal as you saying hi to your wife. You know, I mean, it was, it, was, it, was just, it was all I knew. I would go to school and talk about this at school. Uh, on Monday, teachers thought I was crazy until they came on Sunday to, to see my father's church and saw this stuff happening. So my father was known as the Miracle Man of Africa. When I was age eight, I started speaking in my father's churches at 14. I was ordained as a minister, given the mandate to take over his whole spiritual organization. Uh, and my whole life was, was a sort of a quest. I was always fascinated with who are we and why are we here and why are some people who have everything miserable? Why do some people have nothing you know, completely happy? And what, what is happiness and what is the purpose of life? So I started reading hundreds and hundreds of books from a very young age, from the Eastern mystics to the Western you know, self-help gurus. And, and I went on a quest. And, and I knew, though, Trip. Uh, that from a very young age that my path wasn't necessarily uh, the church. It wasn't religion. It wasn't this organized structure. I knew that there was a deeper calling. But I, did, I just, you know, as a kid, I, I wanted my father's love and acceptance and approval. And I didn't have the courage to follow my truth. I didn't have the, I knew that this was not my path. Let me make that clear. It took me four years to muster up the courage because I was terrified that if I followed my heart, if I follow my knowing, and, and by the way, I really believe that most of us, when we have a question about our life or our life purpose or our relationship, at the depth of our being, we know. We sometimes pretend. We sometimes lie. Uh, what I did and what I see a lot of people do is we play a game of uh, confusion. Like, I'm so confused. I'm not sure. We right. play a game of, of, of I, don't, I, I don't know. I don't know what I should do. I don't know if this relationship is right for me. I don't know if this job works. Which I, is I, usually like, I don't know what to do without going broke. I don't know what to do without pissing people off. I don't know what, to, like, that's what, that's what it really means. They haven't figured, they haven't finished the end of that sentence yet. We do know what to do. We, we do know. If we're willing to say, I actually do know, but but often what we're afraid of is acknowledging the truth of what we know because we're afraid of the consequences. Right. You know? Going right. broke, pissing someone off. You well, know, I getting- think that's where a lot of these guys can – that they're listening. Maybe they didn't grow up with a father that had a huge church like yours did. But I think we can all relate to what I'm expected to do and what I'm quote-unquote supposed to do or I should do. And then who am I to go after what I really want? And that's what you were up against um, when your father was basically like saying, you know, it's time for you to step in here and take over the church. Yeah, there was, there was, my life was set out for me, you know, and and this whole path was set out for me. And there came a point in my life where I, where I literally knew I had to choose. I was going to follow the expected path and be the good boy and, and do what everyone wanted me to do based on the cultural societal expectations. But I, when I felt into my heart trip, I, I had a moment one day where I knew if I, if that's what I did, I might be successful by everyone else's standards, uh, in the world. 
but I, I felt and saw a part of my soul dying. And that was the glimpse of that reality for the rest of my life was so painful. Yeah. And then I looked at the other way, which was following my own path into God knows where into the complete unknown, right. which was, you know, coming to the U.S., which was going into the field of personal growth and without any idea how that was going to happen, what that was going to look like, what the full, it was total unknown. Mm-hmm. But something about that felt so aligned, felt so true that as much as my mind was a little freaked out, as much as my, you know, my logical self was like, oh, my God, how am I going to make that happen? In my soul, when I felt deeper, it just felt right. And I couldn't, I couldn't deny it. And I, yeah. had a, and I had a choice to make. And, I, and that cho- part of that choice was to be the willingness to be radically honest with myself about what I knew in that moment. And to not lie to myself. And I think that's what we often do. Part of how we keep ourselves stuck is we're constantly BSing ourselves, constantly lying to ourselves about the truth of what we feel and what we know. And, and then we numb ourselves. We, we find ways to distract ourselves and, and criticize those that are actually doing that. We belittle them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it, was, it, it took a lot of courage. It took a lot of courage to well, go. Well, I mean, in. let's get specific because it's one thing to say, I'm going to do my own path, but you then then kind of the not kind of the impossible basically happened you decided how old were you you were 18 19 I was, I was probably 17 at the time and i realized i had to have a conversation with my father and that's when uh you know i think at some point you have to disappoint your parents in, in terms of following your own path and that's what part of my initiation into manhood was which was you could almost say killing my father uh, which is how it felt. I, I realized I was going to have to literally kill my father symbolically, metaphorically, uh, and kill his dream to be true to myself. And uh, I had a conversation with him one day, and him and I weren't very close. So I realized by having this conversation, I would probably be outcast. And I was, to a degree, for two years, him and I didn't speak, and and uh, had the conversation with him. And I thought he was going to scream and go crazy and yell. And he just said, I, I said, Dad, I'm not taking over your, your, your organization. He's just said, are you sure? I said, yes. He said, are you really sure? I said, yes. He said, okay. And that was it. And we barely spoke for two years. So it was, it was excruciating. But uh, I've, Did you I, really get that he didn't love you at that point? Or did you get that? Uh, like- I, I, here's, here's where I was, honestly. I had made a choice that nothing was worth my freedom. Before I had the conversation, before I went into the conversation, I didn't go into the conversation looking for his permission, looking for his blessing. I had actually already made peace with the worst case. And I had, I had actually truly grieved it, cried about it and let my father go. And I, I had, I had, you could say I had surrendered him. I had given him up so that no matter what happened, I had already given him up. I was already ready for whatever. Um, and uh, I just came to a place, trip of realizing nothing is, is worth my freedom. You know, nothing is, nothing is worth that. I want to so, underline what you did there because I, what I experienced so many times is there's guys that are living with this and maybe they'll start to have the courage to speak up about it in the world, but they won't. That what they are looking for is that doorway, that permission, that validation, that's a support. So they might float the idea, hey, you know what, I'm thinking about maybe sort of kind of going in this direction and, and hoping that the other person goes, absolutely, here's a check and here's the doorway and I'm going to support you or whatever. And, and they don't get that. And if, yeah. and, and if they don't get that, they, they take it as like, well, it's not a good idea. But they were, they were looking for that permission. See, what I realized when I really sat with it at that time and I had a sort of moment and it was, it was telling the truth for me that was, was, was so key. I just stopped bullshitting myself and realized 
this is not my past. I can lie to myself. I can pretend that I will be miserable. And when I told myself the truth, the truth was so, it burned. It was so painful that it, it, it kind of, I had to, I knew the choice I had to make. And then I also asked myself a question like, if my father was, was not around, if he was dead, if, if I had no father, what would I do? And it was very clear what I would do. I'd go to the U.S. I'd follow this path going into the unknown. So knowing that truth, I, I knew what I had to do because I knew if I didn't follow that truth, I would have to live with the pain and the heartbreak for the rest of my life of lying to myself, of betraying myself. And, and honestly, that felt more painful. That felt more painful. Yeah. So. Well, the part of the book or the part of the, the story that we haven't told yet is you, you enter a green card lottery. You get oh. a green card. <laughs> you get on a plane and come to a, a city you've never been to. You don't know anybody there. You don't, yeah. you don't, you got a little bit of money, but it wasn't long before you didn't have any money and you're, you're walking around. what did you do? You walk around Vons, like eating a loaf of bread and then walk out like kind of thing, like trying to feed yourself. I mean, you, you're bringing up all the, was that in the book? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would go, I lived in Koreatown, which was at that time, not the best place. It was like literally after the LA riots and you know, I had no money. So my choice was, do I spend, you know, do I spend a dollar at the Chinese, you know, restaurant getting a, a, some fried rice or do I go into like, uh, like, like one of the, yeah. the, it wasn't like a Vons, it was a Vons type of place. And I would literally go in with a shopping cart, pretend I was going to, I was going to, uh, buy some food and, and, and open up some bread, eat it while I was there and, you know, and just spontaneously change my mind and walk out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the point that, but that's the point that if a guy isn't committed, he's thinking, gosh, I could be, be I could be on that other path. I I'm doing the wrong thing. You, you have to, you have really, there comes a point where I had to, and maybe it's not everyone's path, but there's something happens when you're really committed. And the question I ask people is, what do you want more than anything else? And most people, you know, don't achieve their full potential, their vision, their goal, their dream, or most people don't transform, not because they don't have the tools, not because they don't have the information. I mean, just, just listen to the New Man podcast. I mean, there's hundreds of, there's so much information out there in the world as to how to change your life, how to transform your life, how to create the life you want. But what I found working with people, Trip, is most of us, we aren't radically committed. So the question I would ask people is, what do you want more than anything else? Like if I stuck your head underwater right now, which obviously, Trip, I would never do, but if I would stuck your, stick your head underwater <laughs> right now and you couldn't breathe and I said, okay, Trip, how you doing down there? You know, how do you feel? Would you like some chocolate cake? Would you like uh, a beer? Would you like uh, you know, a Snickers bar? What would you say? What would you want more than anything else? Obviously, if your head was underwater for like three minutes. I want that breath of air. Want that breath of air. And you wouldn't want it like, well, you know, it would be kind of nice. Or when I have more money or, or when, when, you know, when this happens or when that happens, you would fight for that breath of air with every ounce of your entire being. So I feel that when we really want to shift, when we really want to transform ourselves and our lives, when we really uh, are committed to going to the next level, like at that level, nothing stops us. Yeah. And, and so I think we and have that's to- also where I, well I just want to underline something that's where when we I, I when I've been in that state of mind when I meet people in that state of mind um, I, I just find like doors open up like the craziest things start to happen when we feel that level of commitment in people but most of us are waiting and saying well if the door opens up then I'll commit if the if this opportunity shows up you know what then I'll make the switch but no, those those they don't show up. The opportunities don't happen until we've made that 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 switch in our mind and said, you know what, I'm going to go for this. Yeah, most of us, most of, most of the time, we're not committed, and that's the harsh truth. 
but we want to pretend we're committed and we dabble. So I think if we're, again, able to tell the truth to ourselves, you know what, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not really committed to this relationship or I'm not really committed to, 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 to taking my business to the next level. It would be nice, but I'm not really committed. Right. And uh, I think that's, that's one of the first keys to really get committed, to give up uh, entitlement as well. Because I think many of us, we have this undercurrent of, of entitlement. Like, you know, I talk about it in my book, you know, my parents should do it. My friends should do it. Trip should do it for me. Uh, Oprah's going to come discover me. Someone out there, it owes me something. And I say, look, what I realized as a young boy coming to the U.S., literally trip at that time, winning a green card with two suitcases, $1,000 in my pocket, books and tapes in, in, in one suitcase, clothes in another, knowing no one. What I realized pretty shortly after sitting around and crying for two weeks because I felt like I didn't know anyone and realized, wait a second, my father is not going to come and save me. My mother is not going to come and save me. The U.S. government is like, no, I, I didn't know any friends. So I realized sitting in my tiny apartment, which was literally the size of a shoebox room. Holy shit. No one is actually no one really cares in this moment. And no one is going to come and do it for me. That if I'm going to be the one that shifts my life and moves and fulfills my true destiny, then I'm going to have to do it. I'm yeah. going to have to do it. So, you know, I always tell people, look, no, no one's going to love you like the, the fantasy in your mind all the time. No one's going to show up on your doorstep and with a briefcase and say, hey, here's, here's a million dollars. I've been thinking about you. you know, here's a, here's, I've been looking for a place to dump this million dollars. For a million, someone to give this no one's gonna, No one is going to go to the gym, get on the treadmill, lose the 30 pounds for you. If it's going to happen, we have to do it. And I think one of those first one of the first steps is, is responsibility, you know, and what I saw is everyone wants to be great. We look at the Jordans, we look at the, you know, the Oprah's of the world, we look at the Elons, we look at the Google guys, we look at all these sort of Mandela's and JFK's and, you know, and we look at these great people and we say, wow, they're so amazing, they're so special. And, I, and what I saw for myself in that moment when I first came to the U.S. was I was going to have to make a choice. I felt such greatness in me, but I realized sitting around crying, crying my eyes out, feeling sorry for myself that uh, I was going to have to choose. And, and to me, great, what I realized was greatness is not some mystical thing that floats from the sky that, you know, it, it is, 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 some, is, is only for the folks that come from a certain family or, or some mystical state of enlightenment yeah. that's bestowed upon us. Greatness is, is a moment-to-moment choice that we get to choose Powerful. consistently over Powerful. and over and over again. And, and it's not easy. You know, and it's not just when you feel. And it's not sexy either. It's it's no one wants to hear get to work. You know, <laughs> do the work. No, if your plan if your plan is to be saved or discovered, which is what most people go out to L.A. to do, is like, oh, I just got to walk around here, and somebody's going to figure out that I'm awesome. That's a shit plan. You know, it's like you got to get to work. I, I believe that. And you know, I was there. I came to the U.S. thinking like somehow the heavens were, were going to part because. The prodigal son arrived, and I sat around. <laughs> yeah. You get you get his shirt that says, "I am the prodigal son," right here. Honestly, I thought like <laughs> somehow everyone was going to just find me, and I just sat there. And I honestly, it was it was excruciatingly hard until mm. I until I made that shift. Of, but that's a shift, shift from that's a shift from boyhood into adulthood. You said it was your initiation where you've been taken care of and you've been provided for, and now it's time, as you said, to take responsibility. I don't think we understand really what responsibility means sometimes. Um, but it is that painful thing of, 
of, oh, it's up to me. And I think a lot of us get into relationships like, oh, now it's up to my partner to make sure I'm happy and fulfilled. We still kick the can. We still kick the burden over to other people and expect our job to do it or our partner to do it or you know something out there to figure it out for us. Um, but that's the difference between that childlike approach and that adult approach. Yeah, and 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 that no one owes no one no one owes us anything, you know. No, literally, like what what would happen if we lived a a day for twenty four hours, or or as an experiment, as if literally no one owes you nothing. Your wife doesn't owe you not anything. No one owes you to open the door to give you anything to say like zero, and you live in that radical responsibility. Well, also just less resentment. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for yeah. sure. You know, there's this there's this thing that there's a phrase I, I think I talk about in the, in in the You Are the One book where we often live in this victimhood of I'm upset because you did X. You know, I'm upset trip because you did X Y Z. So now what I'm doing is I'm making my state of being, my happiness, my freedom, my emotional state in this moment. Uh, I'm making it your responsibility. So then what we tend to do is I now spend my entire life, day, hour, trying to get you over there to shift your X, Y, Z so that I'm no longer upset. Good luck. And, 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 and good, good luck. It's, it's, it's a total uh, victim trap. Yeah. You know? So, so that, that shift of responsibility from the outer to the inner, realizing the power of our choice is, is, is a simple of a profound freedom that is a moment to moment to moment to moment choice. Yeah. Let's talk about motivation because I can imagine being so young, coming over to America mm -hmm. and not talking to dad, that there was a part of you that's like, I got to show dad. I got to prove to him. I got to prove to myself that this was the right thing. And is how, how much of that is still with you? How much, like, or did, did you finally get divorced from that part of your motivation? Where's yeah. that for you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely not the case in this moment. But I think when I first came over, there was, you know, a tremendous amount of resentment at the time, a tremendous amount of anger, not feeling supported and feeling like, you know, he didn't love me. And, 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 and there was a sense in those first few years of, you know, there was a reality on some level that, look, I, I actually couldn't go back with my tails between my legs. Uh, mm -hmm. So there was a sense of I did have something to prove. But, you know, there came a point where I gave it up. You know, I think it was two, three years into being in the U.S. where I literally just surrendered. I, I forgave him for what I thought he did, you know. And, but, but that was the shift. When I talk about, like, no one owes us anything, there was a day where I, real, where, where I just confronted the reality of, my dad doesn't owe me anything. He doesn't owe me love. I mean, it would be nice. He doesn't owe me support. He doesn't owe me understand. It would be nice. He doesn't owe me right. a phone call. I mean, I was resentful. He didn't even call me. He didn't even give me money, nothing. And I realized, wait a second, cool. If I stay stuck in my victimhood of how I, I, how I think he should be, then I'm going to be miserable. And right. uh, so I had to give up my own sense of righteousness and, and really realize that, wait a second, he, my, my father, he, number one, I had to accept who he was. He is what he is. He's not changing. He was that way. He's not being how he is because of me. He was that way bef before I showed up and he's, he is what he is. And I realized my resentment towards my father was actually getting in the way of my ability to have a relationship with him. My resentment towards my father and my, my entitlement attitude was also getting in my way to receive 
whatever it was he was able to give me, which he was able to give me a lot, but I wasn't even open to that. Mm. So when I gave up the, 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 the whole idea that he owed me anything and I just forgave him, I realized just for the fact he gave me life. I mean, it might sound a little, you know, uh, I don't know what to call it, but, but it might sound a little woo-woo, but no. what I realized was he, this man gave me life. And if, I, and if someone before I incarnated into this existence said, look, you can have a father, he, and I'm exaggerating here, but he's not going to do anything for you other than donate sperm and, 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 and imprint <laughs> you with certain potentiality and certain gifts yeah. in your nervous system as a human being, would you still take the ride? And I realized at 19, 18, 19 years old, my answer was yes. And I felt the profound gratitude. I realized how, I don't want to curse here, Trip, but I realized how damn ungrateful, and it just struck me, sitting on my couch, feeling sorry for myself, crying my eyes out with you know, a slice of bread in my hand, how ungrateful I was for my father. How un- what an ungrateful human being I was in my life. Mm. How it, it, it was this epiphany in my tiny apartment of realizing, oh my God, you know, here I am. I want this and I want that. And I'm complaining about this and I'm complaining about that and how I don't have this. And, uh, and, and, and I was in such a contracted state that I was disconnected from any sense of gratitude. And I realized in that moment, not only how ungrateful I was, but I realized how much life just to even breathe, Trip, just to even take a deep breath and, and, and just to have all the bodily processes functioning in that moment, just just each second, how much life is profoundly loving me in, in, in every second. That the fact I'm alive is living proof of how much life loves me. Yeah. And, and just that simple realization, something shifted in my heart, Trip, of like, holy, wait, I have never felt the profound love of life, God, the divine, infinite, whatever you want to label it in this moment, just for me to take a deep breath and all the processes that have to happen. Yeah. And something dropped and I just, I just like my heart cracked open. I, I, I just had such profound gratitude for my father when I gave up that he should be different. He should do anything. And that freed me. And I forgave, yeah. I forgave myself and my relationship with him shifted and, and my motivation shifted from screw you. I'm going to prove, prove to you how wrong you are to, you know, wow, let me, let me, let me, let, I have so much to give. Let me just give the gifts I have to give. And yeah, you get out of this reactive place where even if it's, um, I, I'm going to try to please you to screw you, I'm going to do my own thing. It's still this reactive place. And when we get out of that, that dynamic, now we're here. Now we can start to answer the question, what am I really here to do other than try and piss off or please my, my parents? I had my own version of that that experience when I was in my 20s. I think I had something in my head, like my dad and I were supposed to be best friends and go fishing all the time and all this kind of shit. And I was disappointed that that wasn't happening. And I remember just having like a real stick up my ass about it. And I don't know what I was listening to or something. And this guy said, you know, if you're not in jail right now, your dad did his job or something like that. It was just something like, but it basically was drop all the expectations. Like you just said, like, like your dad was just a sperm donor. And it's something I just felt it like it was that new thought came in 
and I got it, and I was and I was so grateful. I was like, oh man, and I was suddenly able to see all the gifts that I had been given instead of just sitting there counting all the ways that it could be better. Yeah. And that was where I was miserable, is looking at how things could be better instead of appreciating what I had. But man, it, it wasn't until that moment where the, I dropped those expectations about how things should be and they're supposed to be uh, that I could really appreciate what I had. You know, you just reminded me of something of in terms of this whole should thing. There's two things that got triggered in my brain as you were talking. You know, in the book, I talk about one of the, the what, one thing that creates suffering is when we're in an experience, whether it's work, whether it's life, whether it's in traffic, whatever the experience is, and we're feeling suffering. Is suffering is that state of feeling like the experience that I'm having is not the experience that I should be having. Should and, be and, having. Yeah. yeah, the experience I'm having, this is, like, this is not the experience I should be ha- having and letting the mind run with that. That is it, like instant suffering right. uh, because then we're just resisting the moment. So I think when we can just drop that and trust that the experience I'm having is actually the experience I should be having and what can I learn from this moment? What, what can I, how can I grow from this moment? How can I evolve? And then make certain choices rather than resisting, except that make certain choices that in terms of focusing on what can I control to move out of this situation. So the other thing I did, you know, at that time trip in terms of as I gave up the entitlement, kind of uh, my father owes me something and in that contracted space, the other thing I did was, was this might sound a little corny. This might sound, you know, I don't know how it's going to sound, but one thing I did was I literally decided to bless everything. Like I went on an extreme, extreme, called extreme gratitude. Like, I mean, when I say I had nothing, I mean, you know, spending a dollar was a big deal. You know, mm-hmm. it was like a dollar was a major purchase for me at that time. Right. So, so, so one thing I did was I went into this extreme gratitude mode of literally I would thank everything. And I mean, it was extreme. I would, th- every step I would take, thank you. Every, everyone I would meet, thank you. Every, you know, it, when someone let me cross the street, th- it was just it's thanking the air, thanking the breath, thanking the flowers, like thanking everything. And what that did for me was it moved, it literally, it, it was like a yoga that shifted my focus, shifted my energy, shifted my perspective, and opened my heart in such a way that uh, uh, life started shifting. Yeah. Know? Well, in a practical sense, you're you're shifting out of a problem orientation into an advantage. Like, what's really going? What's going well here? What can I be grateful for? But our minds, they can just be conditioned of that's not this enough. That's not that enough. That's not this enough. It should be that, and that just creates that suffering, as you said. And we just compound that suffering. But you can practice the other way. You can you can build that other muscle, which is what's going well. I was watching a uh, a comedian the other night. And um, I've loved this guy for a long time. And, but I noticed, like, you know, a big part of, of most stand up comedians is complaining. And he was really pouring on how miserable and how shitty uh-huh. things were and all and on. And after I finished watching, I, I just happened to be reading some news online and I found out that uh, someone close to him had died and, and uh, his wife had died. And I just remember, like, wow, he, he probably trade. <laughs> that moment where he thought he was miserable for what he's going through right now. And I'm not saying that he deserved it by, that, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that you never know where your most fortunate time is. And you might be sitting in the middle of it, complaining and pissing it away and, and creating suffering for yourself when really it's, it's the best moment you may have. Mm, absolutely. Mm. Many of the moments we're in now, you know, and, and the other thing I realized at that moment when I first came to the U S was, <clears throat> you know, as broke as I was, as 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 challenged as I was, 
this was the moment I dreamed about, you know, and and in that moment, I, I'll never, one thing that really helped me as well was realizing, wait a second, as challenged as I am, I would not trade this for going back home. Mm. I, I would not trade this for anything. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a beautiful feeling of knowing. I think that's how we often can also feel when we're on the right path. It, you know, sometimes we have this idea trip that, oh, you know, when, when I find my life purpose and I really connect with what I'm here to do, or I'm doing like, you know, my mission. It's going to be like, easy. It's going to be easy and the unicorns <laughs> are going to sing and the violins are going to play and, and everything's going to flow in the synchronous unfolding of the effortlessness of the universe of life. And, right. and I think, you know, that's kind of a myth. I think many times when we actually do connect with our life purpose, it's, it's incredibly challenging. Yeah. Uh, it can be sometimes downright hard, sometimes painful. Sometimes, you know, we're going to feel like giving up. Uh, a tremendous amount of times, uh, because anything I think that is truly part of our life purpose will require us to grow, and will will require us to to give up who we've been. Will require us to metamorphosize and transform ourselves so that we can really fulfill our our true soul's potential, which is going to require growth. Yeah, and, uh, it's challenging, and sometimes it's hard. You know, but it, that, that doesn't mean anything's wrong. Right. Uh, so. Right. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I work with people for a minimum of a year. You know, mm-hmm. typically I work with people for several years. And so I got to know pretty early on whether this is going to like we're really in this or not. And it's great to have that that kind of litmus test because things will get difficult. Things will be challenging. And if you're just wanting to be a tourist or you just want to ride in the sightseeing bus as you go through this, then let's not do this. Let, I don't want to waste your time. Please don't waste mine. Um, I remember a time when I was, I don't know, I must have been like 23 and I was starting my first business and I think I made like a few hundred bucks the entire summer and I was in debt and not really eating a whole lot and stressed out 14 hours a day trying to make things happen and I was talking to somebody and they're like, I don't know why the hell you're doing this, man. You should you should just get a job, like sell all this gear that you bought and just go, just go get a job and I was like, and in that moment I was like, thank you, absolutely not. Like, but it helped me realize that I was committed and I was just going through a tough period. But I wasn't challenged. I wasn't going to question anything that I was doing. I wasn't going to question the path. And, and I remember it felt much easier after that point when I knew I wasn't going to jump ship. When I knew I wasn't going to make the shift, uh, that I wasn't going to uh, back down, that I was fully committed, that's when it felt a lot easier, even though things were still challenging. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. It's commitment. Commitment. Yeah. Um, you Are the One, it's Coot's new book. Uh, go find it at youarethonebook.com. He's got some other free gifts available for you there. Brother, thank you so much for coming to talk today, man. It's been great being here. Thank you for having me. I love you lots. You're doing great work. It's been, it's been a real honor hanging. If these interviews are helping you, then please visit The New Man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.